You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash filmschool. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Mixing animation with archival footage, the film Chicago 10 explores the build-up to an unraveling of the Chicago conspiracy trial of eight activists set up as scapegoats by the U.S. government. With us today is Chicago 10's writer and director, Brett Morgan, whose film premiered on opening night of the 2007 Sundance Film Festival. Chicago 10 went on to win the Silver Hugo Award for Best Documentary at the Chicago International Film Festival. Morgan is an Academy Award-nominated producer and director. His credits include the Robert Evans biopic, The Kid Stays in the Picture, which he co-wrote and co-directed. Brett Morgan, welcome to Film School. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. We're up here in Boston. Uh, just had a great screening with Tom Hayden here. And, uh, oh, very good. Happy to speak with you. We've met Tom. Mike and I both have. And yeah. Tom Hayden was over at Mike's house for yeah. one fundraiser. For a Mike fundraiser. Had, so, yeah. I wouldn't say we're old friends, but we certainly are very closely associated in our, our associates. How's very Tom good. doing today? Uh, Tom's life. good. What's he think of the film? Tom, it was interesting. <laughs> when Gilmore invited us to open the Sundance Film Festival... You know, it got a lot of publicity, and we heard through various channels that Tom was planning to uh, come to the screening. And I got a little nervous because my movie is very yippee centric, and uh-huh. and Tom is is rather vocal about his conflicts with the yippies, which uh-huh. dated back to '68. So I was very nervous about what he was going to say about the film. And during the Q and A of the movie, the uh, I'm looking in the audience and I see Nick Nolte raise his hand, and I'm like, yes, uh, <laughs> Nick Nolte. And he goes, yeah, I just want to know what Tom Hayden <laughs> And I was like, oh, God, here it comes. Um, I brought Tom up on stage, and he said, you know, I got a question for you. I want to know how a guy who wasn't born at the time could have got it so right. Oh, really? Um, oh, wow. Excellent. He said, you know, you really seem to have captured the energy of that movement in a way that I hadn't seen before. Now, in all fairness, Tom has gone on to say that he takes issue with the way that I've theatricalized history. And in fact, last night we got in a debate about it where he said, you know, I think it's inherently dangerous to theatricalize history. And I said, well, I think that's a, that's a dangerous comment, Tom. What are you suggesting, that, that history is presented as something dry and empirical, as if there's some form of objective history that one can grasp? One of the things I try to do with Chicago 10 is go back to a place where history is fun. It's not about dates and facts and leaders. It's something to be experienced. And in that sense, Chicago 10 is more steeped in mythology than it is in sort of historical drama. It really kind of follows in the sensibility of the yippies in essentially this political theater. Yeah, I mean, the movie is a sort of... I mean, it's very yippie-centric, and the movie itself almost personifies hippie in the sense that it invites you in through laughter and entertainment and comedy and a a very sort of a reverent approach to history. And yet at a certain point, you realize that there's a a political subtext that starts rising to the surface. And ultimately, you know, one of the yippie ideas was that there are no leaders. And as you enter the third act of this movie, you may remember that all of the sort of protagonists of the film are sort of stripped off the canvas. And what you're left with are the people marching to the Hilton. 
What did uh, Tom say to your response that it's also a dangerous comment to to turn uh, history into something bland and academic? I think what Tom was ultimately getting at is that filmmakers like myself are more drawn to the more theatrical characters in history, like an Abby Hoffman. To be honest, when I started this film, I didn't know whose point of view I would go into. I didn't know if it was going to be a Yippie point of view or a mobilization point of view. But I do know that I found Tom's speeches to be rather dry and they didn't resonate with me. And yet when I would see Abby, I would jump to life and was totally amused and and engaged. Now, if I were doing a PBS television documentary about uh, Chicago, I might enter it through Tom's point of view. But what I try to do here is create an entertaining theatrical experience. And the experience is really the goal. There have been a ton of books written about this subject. It seems in a way that everyone who was alive in the 60s has written their own memoirs about it. One of the things that I felt was missing that we can offer audiences in this was something that only cinema can do, which is create the experience through both montage and oral landscape. What you've done very effectively is blend this archival footage with the animation and the dramatization that you pulled this whole thing together, and you give those four or five days a context, and you give them that sense of drama, which I think you did a terrific job with. What made you decide to go with animation? One of the great things that's happening in nonfiction now is we're, we have access to digital tools that we didn't have before, and, and coupled with the fact that there are a lot of filmmakers who are entering the field as opposed to journalists, and we have different agendas as such. So there is no footage of the trial, and so traditionally one would probably represent it through eyewitness accounts. I had no interest in that. I mean, one, most of the colorful characters of the trial, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, David Dellinger, Judge Hoffman, and Bill Kunzler are all dead. And so I didn't feel that it should be the story of the Chicago 8, 7, or 10 as seen by those who happen to be alive today, nor did I want the audience to experience this through the prism of aging boomers. You know, I could have used actors reenacting the trial, but then given the wide amount of archival material, I thought it would be jarring for the audience to constantly go back, as if it's not jarring with animation. But the trial was very circus-like in nature, and Jerry Rubin once referred to it as a cartoon show. And it felt like a sort of fun way of approaching history, as and a very yippy way of approaching history, as rendering it as a as cartoon. In this case, motion capture animation. Now, have you had any other of those still alive who were participating in the trial? Have they seen it and have they had any comments? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm still getting feedback. We've, we've sent screeners out to pretty much everyone. This is not a film that I think sort of warrants an, an investigation into what is fact and what is fiction or what is what has been interpreted or not. It's clearly that this is interpretive history. So Bobby Seale uh, was at a screening recently, and apparently he was, he was very fond of the film. He had a couple quibbles with how his the scenes were staged when he was um, bound and gagged. That's obviously going to happen, but, you know, there's this sport right now and that's exi- it's sort of emerged in the last five years that I find to be dangerous in, in film criticism in which people try to deconstruct a film like Walk the Line from what is real to what is fictionalized. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for us to understand where our media is coming from. When you go to a movie theater to see a movie, whether it's Walk the Line or a Michael Moore film, you need to understand the economics of the world and the fact that you're seeing a piece of entertainment. 
I don't think a movie theater is a place for a history lesson. I think books are, are much better suited because of the ability that they have to contextualize events. I think that broadcast journalism is fantastic, but I'm, I'm a filmmaker, right. and so I am going to theatricalize history, and I'm going to enjoy it as I do it. I, I certainly don't want anyone to walk away from Chicago thinking they sound the definitive story. Spielberg's making a film in Chicago right now. There's, there's going to be filmmakers 10 years from now that are going to do Chicago and probably 20 years from now. Ultimately, when, when a filmmaker or an artist does a movie about a time that predates them, that story is more of a reflection of the time they're writing in than the time they're depicting. And that certainly is the case of Chicago 10. I always thought of this in, in, in similar ways the way Baz Luhrmann took Romeo and Juliet and updated it to uh, Mexico City in you know, mm-hmm. contemporary times. Mm-hmm. I was taking the imagery and iconography of the 60s and using it to tell a story about today. And in that context, when Allen Ginsberg's on the witness stand and he's testifying and saying, politics is theater and magic. It is the manipulation of the media through imagery that has hypnotized and confused the country into believing in a war that really didn't exist. Well, in my film, he's not talking about Vietnam. He's talking about Iraq. And he's yeah. talking specifically yeah. about Colin Powell's testimony in front of the United Nations. That was very much what, what this film was about for me. Now, that said... We did an insane amount of research to try to depict the experience of Chicago and reconstruct those events in somewhat of an authentic manner. And I, but what you don't get in this film is a sort of obligatory 60s documentary montage of all of these events that sort of, uh, you know, Tet Offensive and Prague and Bobby Kennedy. And the movie very much works within its own narrative, which is there's a war, there's an opposition to a war, and there's a government trying to silence the opposition. You, You may notice in the film that the music in the movie is, is contemporary. It's scored by uh-huh. the Beastie Boys and Rage Against the Machine and Eminem. One of the reasons I did that was, you know, a lot of the music from the 60s, the protest music, has been appropriated by Madison Avenue. Yeah. And it no longer has the same impact it once did. And it's, it's become a bit cliched and a little moldy. And when you take images like when the protesters decide to charge the Logan statue, yeah. if you run Phil Oaks underneath it, to me, it would just feel like dusty and dated. But when you take, you know, the Beastie Boys sabotage and you run it underneath it, it feels like suddenly something that might have happened, you know, last month or last year as opposed to 40 years ago. Are you trying to incite a riot? <laughs> you know, since I'm in Massachusetts and you guys are in California, if I was to say that, I would be indicted for crossing state lines. Crossing state lines, <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go. You took some lessons from William Kunstler and uh, Julius uh, Hoffman, it sounds like. I, I was struck by what this film conveyed to me was the immediacy of politics of the time that we in some way that that resonated throughout our society it doesn't seem to have the same resonance that uh, going back to the massive protests that went on just prior to the invasion of iraq you know, my generation's been defined by boomers my entire life. We've been called slackers and Gen Xers, and there's a boomer myth that no generation will ever be as potent or powerful or activated as that generation. And I think that it's a fallacy. I think that if you look at today's youth, they're as engaged and active as any generation that's come before them. They've just protest in a different way. Well, well, let me... Protest has gone viral, and you look at the record numbers of people that are turning out to um, register in the uh, primaries, it's inspiring. And you go to YouTube and you see the amount of homemade videos that people are putting forward. Um, certainly, times have changed. We don't have a draft. Um, and, you know, street protests 
might have been rendered ineffective through that may might have been the lesson of the 60s that street protest really isn't impactful because the war did continue for seven more years right. after Chicago right. and yet what what I find sort of a bit disturbing is that in 2006 Americans once again turned up in record numbers to do what we're supposed to do which is vote and vote for change. And 70% of Americans decided that they weren't in support of the war and, and voted out the Republicans and put in the Democrats. And the president's response to that was to send 30,000 more troops to Iraq. Right. So it's a bit, you know, it's hard given that, that context to get excited. But then, you, you know, someone like Obama comes around who people are constantly mentioning in the context of Bobby Kennedy. You know, Tom was certainly talking about that last night. And he's, you know, exciting people in a way that, that we haven't seen. One of the really interesting things I've heard about the current election is that it's really a referendum on on, on the boomers. That the, you know Hillary Clinton is uh, representing you know that generation, and it's probably one of the last times that we'll have a presidential candidate who is you know is active in the '60s, and Obama, which is sort of a new voice and a new generation sort of coming to power. You know, I don't want to say who I support or whatnot, but I think that it's an interesting contrast. We're speaking with Brett Morgan. The film is Chicago 10. And he supports uh, Barack Obama, I think, too. I actually don't. I, mean, oh. I haven't decided yet. But oh, okay. I, no, from but a, from a filmmaking, you know, from a sense of theater, I, I find it fascinating what's going yeah. on right now. Can, can, I, can I just say, for the, without at the risk of sounding defensive, what I meant by my comment about it, the immediacy You're sounding defensive is right? that that the po- the politics were more plugged into a cultural sweep than they are today. But in, also, I will say that the protests that occurred prior to the Iraq invasion were the first time that I know of in recorded history where there were protests before a war started on a scale, a worldwide scale, which is a huge leap forward in terms of affecting the political uh, And discourse. yet the war. And yet came. the war goes on seven years later. <laughs> yeah. So there yeah. you go. These are fascinating uh, archival footage segments you have here. I just wonder where you got some of these. There's the uh, shots of Hoffman, and there's an old lady. She's calling him a long hair and a communist. Yeah, but where, where does this stuff come from? There's this fascinating footage. Did you have trouble getting all that? Well, I mean, it was exhausting. We spent three years collecting media. Once we decided we weren't going to use a narrator or talking head interviews, I knew that the, the, the film would basically be built upon archival material, and, and those images became my words, which would I would use to construct my sentences and ultimately the script. So I became absolutely committed to the idea of trying to get my hands on every piece of media that existed related to the subject. Because the worst thing that happens is you, you make a film like this, and you go out on the circuit, and you start screening, and someone comes up to you and says, oh, man, you should have reached me. I had all this great material you yeah. could have used. So we found stuff, you know, literally on three different continents. I mean, obviously, most of it was in America. We started with the major networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, and raided their archives. And then we went after the um, underground film collectives and um, put ads in papers across the country asking if anyone had home movies and yeah. such forth. Um, a lot of the, my favorite images from the film were outtakes. The one you're referring to is an outtake from a 1970 Granada television, which oh. is a station in England, uh, documentary about the trial uh, directed by Leslie Woodhead. 
One of the reasons I loved it was he shot it, as people did at the time, on 60-millimeter color negative, which gave us a great sort of source material to draw from. And the scene you're describing is a hilarious scene in which Abby Hoffman is um, interviewing pedestrians outside the courthouse in 1969, um, just sort of asking them what they think of what's going on in the trial, not representing himself as one of the defendants. <laughs> and uh, this woman keeps saying to him, he's like, yeah, what do you think of the, you know, what do you think of the trial? And she's like, well, you know, I think they should uh, clean themselves up. And he's like, wow, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, like you, you should go get a haircut. He's like, wow, what? And that, and I, it was so interesting to me because that's kind of what the whole thing was about. Yeah. It was about yeah. hair. It was about people who didn't look like the ruling party. Yeah. I mean, Judge Hoffman and, and Mayor Daley could not accept anyone who didn't look like them. Uh, Daley was inherently racist. He had um, he was incredibly freaked out and scared by uh, by the Black Power movement, and he was equally frightened by the the Cultural Revolution that was happening in the country. And it reminded me, I think, in this sense, this movie becomes a film about generational politics and something that anyone can relate to, because so many of us had had fathers who would say things to us like, you know, as long as you're living in my house, you live by my rules. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I had long hair in high school, and my dad used to, it freaked him out. And he would, like, you know, get really caustic with me because I didn't look like him. And I wasn't an athlete like him. And I think that's what the problem was. You know, one of the things with Chicago is that Judge Hoffman and Mayor Daley wanted to cut the head off the snake. They thought there was disease in America, and it was their response. And, by the way, and anyone who didn't look like them was referred to as a commie, the same way that the current administration sort of referred to anyone early on that was protesting the war as anti-American or unpatriotic. Or a terrorist. Yeah, or a terrorist. Uh, it's a similar sort of um, uh, similar vocabulary. Judge Hoffman in that courtroom was the voice of death. He was this sort of dying geriatric dinosaur who couldn't accept change and felt it was his moral obliga ob obligation to make sure that these defendants spent the next 10 years in prison, you know, get them off the streets. That's why John Mitchell indicted them. Mm -hmm. Ramsey Clark, the attorney general in 1968, had no interest in indicting the protesters. He wanted to actually indict uh, some, of the, some of the officials in Chicago. But when Nixon won the election, uh, one of the first things he did was have Mitchell get all these guys off the streets. And that was really what this trial was about, was there was no conspiracy in Chicago. There weren't even riots. The demonstrators didn't even start the riots. The police started the riots. Well, there was an official report that came out later that called it a police riot. Exactly. Why? And not to get too semantical here, but I think it's an important distinction, uh, one that I made the mistake of when I, when I first started talking to people about this film. I said, yeah, it's a movie about the riots. And they, and, and they would always very quick say, no, no, they weren't riot protest riots. They were police riots. And, and, and the footage certainly uh, bore that true. You know, there's another uh, little small piece of fascinating footage you have, too. It's the, uh, I think it's a news commentator talking about Allen Ginsberg <laughs> and, and how he's, he's chanting, um... It's, oh, yeah, it's that not, was it has yeah. nothing to do with you know, OM. One of the things in the film <laughs> yeah, is that, I, that I knew going into it was some of the stuff in the courtroom is so outrageous. You just can't believe this stuff actually happened. And then on top of that, once I animate it, you know, it even seems more, you know, someone said to me the other day, you've clearly taken a lot of license with the animation. For example, like Bobby so clearly was never bound and gagged. Mm -hmm. uh, this, this was a young kid who, you know, at a, at a college tour. And so one of the things I tried to do in the film was whenever I'd have a really outrageous animation scene, cut to a live archival interview or press conference where someone was describing what they just saw in the courtroom. So there was a moment in the trial where um, Allen Ginsberg was 
providing testimony, a brilliant testimony. I mean, absolutely beautiful. Afterwards, the uh, there was a, a fight that went on while Ginsburg was still sitting in the stand between Bill Kunstler and Tom Ferran and the judge. As they're all screaming at each other, Ginsburg starts oming. Yeah. And, you know, ohm, yeah. ohm. And the judge turns to him and goes, Will you please be quiet? And Kunstler says, uh, Your Honor, he's just trying to calm us down. And the judge goes, I don't need any calming down. Well, uh, the reporter, then we cut to the reporter on camera, goes, Alan Ginsburg was in the courtroom today saying, um. <laughs> um, and that guy was uh, from Tribune Media, which was uh, as conservative. Uh, I mean, it was Fox TV in the days before Fox TV. Just based on the fact that he couldn't even get it right, he didn't understand that he was oming and not umming, yeah. uh, was, he just showed you how um, far apart the, the, you know, the cultures were at that point. Yeah. Absolutely. I love the Walter Cronkite at the very beginning saying uh, the Democratic Convention is taking place yeah, there's in such a, a, a great a, use of archival in a footage police in state. This. Yeah, that I was must good, say, yeah. Yeah. you did a fine job. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you know, when we started this film, um, the uh, I never thought for a minute to hire a documentary editor because I knew we were dealing with such an enormous wealth of of um, archival material, particularly stuff that was from multiple sources. So we would have scenes that would have as many as, you know, we'd have footage from as many as 50 different sources um, that would enable us to reconstruct those events. So I hired uh, a guy named Stuart Levy who uh, had cut Oliver Stones on any given Sunday. Huh. Um, big action adventure guy cut Rennie Harlan's Driven, just did a recut on Jumper, the Doug Lyman film. And when I hired Stuart, I said, I'm, this is probably the only time in your career someone's going to say this to you, but you are the star of this movie. This is an editor's film, mm-hmm. and um, and you are front and center on this thing. And I think Stuart did an unbelievable job of creating, uh, particularly the the chaos in those riot sequences. Yeah. I, I you know I, I I don't I don't know if it's possible to ever um, do something like this again because. Um, and I mean that in a sort of slightly technical way, in the sense that um, everybody in Chicago was shooting 16 millimeter. You know, these were the days before video, so to speak. And yet there were as many as, you know, 80 different people shooting in Chicago. Um, so we have this unbelievable wealth of 16 millimeter archive um, to play with. And, uh, you know, Stuart and I, there were. Um, a couple movies we'd watch to sort of find inspiration, but one of them, uh, one of my favorite films is The Wild Bunch by Sam Peckinpah. Mm-hmm. And I kept saying to him, during the, the last riot to the Hilton, we need to keep thinking of The Wild Bunch, keep thinking of The Wild Bunch, uh-huh. the way that the sort of orgy of violence goes down. Um, and as disgusting and grotesque as those images are, as you guys know, as you know, most of us filmmakers, particularly my generation, have a slight obsession with violence. And so it was uh, humbling and exhilarating to be able to uh, play with that type of imagery. Thank you, uh, Brett Morgan. This is a terrific film, and uh, we appreciate you coming here to film school to talk to us about it. And good luck to you and and this film. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. To learn more about film school, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, Visit our website at KUCI.org slash filmschool.